Hello, hello. Welcome to Ami Tuckered Out. I am your host, Ami Tucker Ravel, and it is officially my first interview of 2021. So excited to be here with you guys. And actually, I'm going to stop talking because I want to get right into this interview. As we all know, there are two outstanding Senate races in one state, Georgia, that will decide control of the U.S. Senate. That will have a big impact on how much President-elect Biden can get done in his first two years of office. And I think we all know that this is perhaps one of the most unusual special elections in American history. It's the opportunity to vote for control of the Senate through two statewide races held at the same time. So I get to talk to my dear friend, Amal Nayak, who is a public policy lawyer at Squire Patton Boggs, and who you can say is an insider, to say the least, actually. I hope you enjoy my interview with Amal Nayak. I was, uh, I, I really have always loved this, like politics and history and all that. But I did pretend because I was really forced to that I wanted to be a doctor for like a really long time. Um, but, but, um, but then, you know, moved away from it in college and, yeah. um, and I really wanted to be a journalist actually. Um, and so I wrote for the, at UNC, we have the most read student, um, newspaper i believe in the country this is really good journalism school um and you know chapel hill is just a college town like there's nothing else going on in large part and so unc has this great tradition of this very independent student newspaper and I like sort of on a whim get this column there that mercifully for me was like right before everything was on the internet you know because it was uh it was very sophomoric at best um yeah. It was called "From the Dank Cave." Was the name of the um, it was the name of the column from the um, Dent Cave. Dank Cave. Right. D- it, it, I lived in. It's. I can't believe I'm talking about this now. But I love it. We were my roommate and I. My sophomore year of college lived in a. We were in a fraternity and we lived in a room that was like painted this very dark green, and so that was where it came from. So, ah. um, yeah, and so. In any case, like I really, you know, did a lot of journalism stuff through the daily tutorials and the editorial board, um, covered sports with it. And then I went to D.C. right out of college. I moved to D.C. like um, like maybe September 7th, 2001, September 6th, 2001, something like that. So September 11th, my second day of work. You know, obviously that was, you know, and I was working at this place called Student Press Law Center at the time, and um, which was a, a, a cool experience in and of itself. But, you know, being in D.C. during September 11th was really, um, you know, just turned a lot of people and myself very much included going from the, you know, journalism observer part of the world to the like, let's like, you know, get in the arena Right. part of the world. Um, and so that's what happened. Um, I, I had the great opportunity of um, working at the Toronto Globe and Mail, um, which is, you know, National Newspaper of Canada, you know, kid from Robson County, North Carolina, working there. I had no idea how great of an opportunity that was. Um, covered DC for them, learned a lot about Canada and international affairs in the process. Then I go to Emory for law school um, thinking I'm just going to go back to DC, work on the Hill and do all that. And I just kind of fell in love with Atlanta. Um, you know, I'm a Southerner, grew up in North Carolina, capital of the South. Um, and there was just so many opportunities. Um, and, you know, as a journalism intern, I was, you know, gosh, my stipend for like a four month period, was like $2,500. Amazing. Like not per week or per month or something, you know, like, for the whole time. So I was like checking IDs at like a bar, you know, and then my You were dad, not, were you? Yeah, I was, I was like a uh, the least the least intimidating bouncer in Northern Virginia pool hall history. Um I can't believe you're a bouncer. Well, I mean, you know, it's a very loose term. Um and my, you know, my parents. I I you know, and, and it's worth noting had my parents not 
supported me, there's no way I could have done that. Right. 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 Um, and, and, and they did support me. And anyway, so I get here and, you know, a big law firm offers me a job where I was making more in a week than made in like three months. And so sort of roll into that. And, um, and then I get real involved in Atlanta politics, right. Which is where the, um, and Georgia politics at a time where like you could not have picked the worst, a worst time to become a Georgia Democrat, like, like Democrats in Georgia controlled everything until 2002, like since reconstruction. Like literally everything. And so I moved down here and I'm loosely thinking like, okay, probably have an internship with the governor, senators, all that. And, um, and within two months, um, in, in 2002, we lose the governor's mansion, lose the Senate seats and, and everything falls apart. And so I'm like one of these few, like Georgia Democrats has really just been around since the, the bottom and, and arguably the bottom was, that job that you mentioned when I was chief of staff of the Senate Democrats in 2005, um, it was actually the first time I'd ever walked into the Georgia state Capitol. I never walked into the Georgia state Capitol ever before I go in there to interview for this job that is normally for a much more seasoned person, but Democrats have literally lost everything. Everything. My friend who got me my first three jobs in politics, his, uncle ran Jimmy Carter's campaign. So he is as plugged into Georgia as you could be. And he really, you know, politics, you really need someone like that to open a door for you. His name's Lawton Jordan. Great guy. Um, if he didn't do that, I never would have gotten any of these opportunities really. But anyway, I'd never been in the state Capitol before. And so I'm interviewing for this like chief of staff job at 24 and my old boss just hires me on the spot. And I'm, um, and I was like, you know, totally didn't know what I was getting into to some extent, but it, I loved it. And, you know, it was it was a decession when Republicans controlled every lever of Georgia government for the first time ever. So we just got the shit beaten out of us like all session long. And I still loved it. You know, well, I feel like that's like probably the best learning lessons at that when you're getting the shit beat out of you. Yeah, right. And if you, you know you really love it, and frankly, you know, state level government also is generally a much more civil place. And 2005 was a much more civil time than 2020, right? Jesus Christ. Right. I mean, really, really was. And so, um, yeah, so this is a real trial by fire. And so then I'm, you know, then when you work in the legislature, you get to know all these the state senators and stuff. And, you know, one of them ends up being mayor of Atlanta and I work on his race and you know, and you just end the sort of sort of in the mix. And, right. um, and then I go to a law firm. Um, so I'm in a law firm right out of law school for um, six years that is super politically connected. Um, it's called McKenna Long and Aldridge at the time. It's now Denton's part of the biggest law firm in the world. And, and um, you know, they just have people, chiefs of staff of governors of both sides of the aisle and former senators and you know, I'm just sort of, you know, this like redneck Indian kid around them, just learning and absorbing the information and, um, and, and, and networking. I'm assuming, like, I'm just oh, you're happily, happily, right. Happily. Yeah. Right. Oh, yeah. Right. No, like, I mean, like, net, like networking is just like even just the understatement of the year, right? Like, it's like just feverishly, yeah, fever, yeah. the ambition I had at that at that time and energy was like unlimited and um you know just just got really involved in it and um and then really the next thing was that i just um got really involved with this 2009 atlanta mayor's race okay um so that was after the chief of staff you know job and working at a law firm and um Mayor Kasim Reed, who was the mayor for two terms at that time, was a state senator, got to know him then. Um, at 29, he made me like the general counsel for his campaign. He really wasn't supposed to win, you know, like and then he sort of upstart and all the rest of it. And then we, um, we ended up winning by 714 votes. And I'm in like at 29, I'm in charge of the recount, you know. And so, like, you know, there's all these national Democratic Party figures 
like, who in the hell is this 29-year-old in charge of the recount? No, well, the redneck brown guy. Right, the redneck yeah. brown guy, right? Okay. And um, and and we, you know, the mayor, mayor then Mayor Reed stuck with me, and we uh, ended up winning, you know, by like 714 votes. And um, I got some, like, you know, rising star type stuff. And then I get a call from Google out of nowhere, um, which I thought was almost even a joke. And this one in Google was like a much, much smaller company. Right. Um, and they needed someone to run their political law um, program, which is they'll set up all the rules around lobbying and political contributions and all that and to move to DC. And so that came on my radar and then I moved up there. And so, um, yeah, it's just been, it's been a really interesting uh, ride. So then from Google, how, what, what was the jump to working for Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms? Um, so the Google thing started off on the legal team um, okay. and in DC, but I really wanted to get back here and then move back and did public policy yep. for Google. And so, you know, anytime there's legislation about drones or driverless cars or data centers and the Southeast, I was like the state and local you know, person and went there and then Google fiber was this telco yep. uh, still is this telco um, operation they had. And I, I went over and worked on that and we got some cool reforms fast. Um, but it was a lot of, you know, really interesting stuff at Google really enjoyed it. But ultimately it was like, do you move out to California, you know, and keep going with the same corporation? You know, I think you've probably seen it in your own life with your husband, like, you know, just a big corporation, you have to move around. Um, and we just, you know, Trish and I made the decision at the time that like the, you know, while Google's a great place to moving to California, wasn't what we wanted to do. And then I was um, fortunate to get a job at MailChimp, um, which is based in Atlanta, a big tech company here, worked there for a little while. Um, and um, at, during that time worked on Mayor Bottoms campaign Um Interestingly, she won by 860 votes. So, like, this, when people say voting doesn't matter, like, literally, the, these two mayoral campaigns I worked on in Atlanta, one was by 714, another was like 865, right? Like, and and that's then that's it's determined who's can you know run Atlanta for you weren't a, you weren't in charge of this recount, were you? No, 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 no. no okay, no, I, was, no, I was like, that's no. insane. <laughs> no, no, no. This recount, um, the, the when and and the. You know, the thing about a recount is, is like, especially with electronic balloting, you know, a recount is really like standing outside of your ATM and yelling at it because you don't like the balance. Like if you don't put the money into the account, you're not going to get the Right. And so that's all it is. Right. I love like, it. Yeah. That's, that's really all it is. Um, and so she put me, Mayor Bonas put me on her transition team and, um, and then asked me to join the administration. And so um, that was a Rockefeller found, Rockefeller foundation funded position um, that was focused on, you know, a lot of really important things like sustainability, um, social equity, human trafficking, you know? And so um, we stood up uh, the office of one Atlanta, which was the, uh, which is the mayor um, policy sort of apparatus. And so, that was a great experience as well. That seems like a pretty big education there. Absolutely. No, I mean, you know, yeah, absolutely. You know, so you're um, just building a team and managing a team of 30 at the, the city level for sure. Um, you know, a lot of hot button issues. Right. Um, you know, so the city's chief equity officer was a direct report, um, sustainability. We passed a clean energy plan where Atlanta made, um, uh, very robust commitments to 100% clean energy by 2035. We're able to get that passed without industry opposition. And so, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Municipal government is, um, you know, you're really, it's, it couldn't be more personal for people, right? Mm -hmm. it, it involves their homes, their trash cans, their potholes. And, and so, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was the first time in my life, where I would meet people who I didn't know that who knew or thought they knew me. Right. And so that, that part of it is, um, is eye opening for sure. For eye opening and that day to day stuff, man, as you get older, you realize like that's, that counts. 
Yes. You know, and, it, and it adds up, right? Yes, yes. yes. Um, so tell me a little bit about your current job. I know you're with Squire Patent Boggs, uh, the public policy practice. So one, I know Squire Patent Boggs is a full service global law firm. So what does that mean? And then also, what is your role there? So, um, yeah, it is a, a full service global law firm. And so there are, you know, a, a number of firms that are truly global, which have operations throughout the world. And, and ours is one of them. Um, the One of the things that's unique about our firm, which I really found interesting, was that the uh, it's really one of the first firms that founded the practice of public policy um, within a law firm. And so that was the legacy patent bogs firm, which is, I think anyone that has any kind of DC experience would have heard of that name. And there's a number of people who have worked that there over the years. Um, and, um, and it just continues to have, you know, there's people from both sides of the aisle, uh, former speaker Boehner is, is uh, at Squire Patent Boggs, as is um, former Democratic House uh, Chairman uh, Joe Crowley. You know, so we just have all these. It's just an amazing place to learn from these folks. And I'm, I'm helping to start up the uh, Southeastern um, practice and specifically I'm focused on technology and infrastructure issues. Um, I had the great pleasure of during the Biden campaign um, working on infrastructure issues as a policy volunteer, you know, helping draft position papers and stuff like that, which for a dork like me is just couldn't be, you know, it couldn't be happier to do something than to write a position paper for someone like Joe Biden. So it was fun. Being a dork is cool now. Yes, it is we're, cool we're now. Finally. We made it. We made it. If I could just tell myself that at 16. <laughs> hey, same here. Don't worry. <laughs> that's why we're still wearing our Target t-shirts. That's right. That's right. That's right. All right. So let, let's get into the, the state of Georgia that you love so much. I'm going to ask you some basic questions just so we can get it out of the way to understand. I know a lot of people probably get it. One, why are these two runoffs in Georgia happening? And then why are there two Senate seats for grab at this point? Great question. And so, and that's a very important question. So, you know, when people say that this Georgia runoff situation is unprecedented and all the rest of it, that's not hyperbole. It really is unprecedented. So the only reason that we have two Senate races during the same year at all is because um, one of our former senators, Senator, Senator Johnny Isaacson, uh, very well-respected statesman, Republican, um, yeah, unfortunately, for health reasons, had to resign his office early. Um, and so Governor Kemp had the opportunity to, to appoint a replacement. He appointed Senator Leffler. Um, and because of that cycle, um, her election then became um, for the for the for two years, the remaining two years of Senator Isaacson's seat coincided with the six year term election for Senator Purdue. And so really no state ever has two Senate elections at the same time outside of a circumstance like that intentionally. Right. 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 And, and so um, so that's a rarity because for that reason, then Georgia's election laws. And so, you know, when you're looking at the election landscape and looking at election laws, and I should say that election laws is a big part of what I do at work now and it was my first part of my um, job at Google and so very much still plugged into that world, the election laws really vary uh, drastically by state, right? So the laws in Connecticut are very different than Georgia and they're very different than Texas and North Carolina. And, um, and that's just a, a function of the system of federalism. I think for the most part, which is positive, um, to some extent less positive, but it just sort of is what it is. And so Georgia is one of the few states and it's, frankly, a sort of remnant from a bad Jim Crow time where uh, where we have that you have to cross 50% to win a statewide race. And so um, in many other states, for instance, Senator David Perdue would not currently be in an election because he won, you know, pretty significantly in uh, November over his um opponent, John Ossoff, but he did not cross a 50% threshold. And so because of that, now he's in a runoff and the um, Isaacson seat, 
that Leffler is the incumbent in had like 21 people running. And so no one was going to be over 50% there. The top two finishers got into the runoff and the top two finishers are Leffler and um, Reverend Raphael Warnock of the historic Ebenezer Baptist church in Atlanta. And so because of that, um, we have this odd situation of two Senate seats on one day. And then lo and behold, it also determines uh, control of the United States Senate because if we won both seats, that would mean it was a 50-50 tie between Democrats and Republicans. And then Vice President-elect Kamala Harris would be the, the tiebreaker, which, you know, that never gets old saying Vice President-elect Kamala Harris. Um, I know. Kamala Auntie, you mean? Kamala Auntie. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I will tell you, uh, and, and just to show you the power of uh, Indian Americans, not only as fundraisers and others, but really as voters now. I firmly believe that had Senator Perdue not racially slurred Kamala Harris with that, you know, absurd. Bullshit. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. And, you know, and, and let's also give the disclaimer that Senator Perdue's last job was uh, working for a huge Gujarat multinational. No, 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 no. I mean, you know, he was CEO of Reebok. Um, Dollar okay. General, like yeah. he, he's a he's a smart you know international business person that's yeah. done so so that was not a mispronunciation um, by any means and frankly had 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 he not committed that uh, racial slur which was obvious to everyone um, I actually don't even think he'd be in the runoff and you and I probably wouldn't even be talking right now and John uh, Ostoff is a great candidate. Uh, no, he he seems he seems pretty cool. He seems like a kind of guy I want to hang out with. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to go back to so yeah, I did read, you know, Georgia is one of the 10 states with a system of runoff elections. It's all these states are basically in the south, besides Vermont. Um, and it's understood kind of as a mean to suppress black votes, like you said. Can you explain that a little bit more? Like, what does that mean? So I would say it was more in it's more of a legacy. Um, of suppression of um, minority or people of color's voting power. Um, what it what it does essentially is um, assures that someone that wins like forty two percent of a vote, for instance, can't. It just gives you another check, right? So if you if you if someone comes out of nowhere and gets forty seven percent of the vote, you can still sort of kind of coalesce around a mainstream or time probably white candidate to go over 50. But I will say in Georgia, um, both parties have played politics with this over many years. And so there's been instances in the past where something like this happened, right, with Senator Perdue, and they'll go back and change it to say, okay, now you have to clear 45%, right? But inevitably what happens is the party who ends up changing the rule becomes, is harmed by it later. So it's, I would say today there are a lot of election laws that are, oh you know, really discriminatory against people of color. Um, I would not say that this runoff system is necessarily in the top of that list anymore. Um, you know, the felon disenfranchisement, for instance, is particularly egregious um, as are voter access points and, and all the rest. But um Really, at this point, it's about politics. And, you know, the Republicans may try try to change it and move it to 45%. And then then what's happened is that's happened before, right? And then a Democrat might clear 45% and they try to change it back. And so, um, yeah, it just shows that our system of um, of voting is um, is not based on, you know, best practices and common intuition, and it's, it's flawed. It's flawed. Yeah. For sure. Uh, which has been a great learning lesson, I think, for all of us that don't understand it, right? Is it surprising to you that these two races are going into a runoff? The Purdue, you know, by conventional wisdom, Senator Purdue um, in a, you know, historically Republican state, um, most people probably thought he was going to clear 50%. Right. Um, but then Joe Biden really did perform extraordinarily well in Georgia. Um, the organizational efforts of people like, you know, my former boss, Mayor Bottoms, people like Stacey Abrams, you know, they've really been moving the state. Uh, there's a lot of, you know, Georgia's had a lot of great economic success. 
So the number of people that have moved here is tremendous. Like, so this is something, you know, that, that you and your listeners, I think will be interested in between 2016 and 2020, the performance among OPI, you know, voters increased 91% in Georgia at four years. So that's basically a doubling, right? And, and, and the reason for that, one, is good organization and stuff on the ground, but really fundamentally it's that people just moved here, right? And so these Atlanta suburbs um, just have a ton of great jobs. And, um, and a lot of uh, Asian Americans are going there and they're finding the right school districts, you know, and everything, you know. Alpharetta is no different than Sugarland, which I, you know, like my whole family lives in Sugarland. Yeah, I figured as much. And so, right. yeah, so I mean, with all the great job opportunities and that, obviously, uh, diversity comes right, right, right. And, and so, Purdue, like you know, but I would say I, I still think because he was barely pulled under fifty percent, um, and and had he not made that racial slur of vice president elect, he may have cleared it. Um, but he may not have because, you know, John Ossoff is a great candidate yeah, um, and is really, you know, he's 33 years old and is really resonating with all kinds of folks that right. are not normal voters. Right. And uh, between him and Warnock, I mean, we just have great candidates. It kind um, of ex- seems kind of exciting. Oh, my God. It's it's it couldn't be more exciting for a political dork like me. I will tell you, though, that you cannot turn on the television in Georgia and not seeing political ad. I mean, yeah. Well, oh no, that's coming up. I have questions about the ads. Um, yeah, yeah. So runoffs January 5th yes. um, and any, you know, registered Georgia voter can vote in this election. Please do. Uh, yeah. And the, the pandemic of course is shaping how people will vote again. In your opinion, can we expect to see the same drama regarding mail-in ballots unfold in this election like we did in November? Or is that something that's kind of we've understood, accepted, and moved on from? The, there's there's no such thing as understanding it. <laughs> kind of, uh, yeah. Accepted and moved on from in 2020, I'm afraid. So so the the turn so the the thing about elections that people don't lay out kind of as clearly as, 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 as it probably should be, is it really is based on who shows up, right? Period. And so the reason Joe Biden was able to win Georgia is we had the highest turnout ever in the history of the state. 67% of people who could vote showed up and voted in a pandemic, which is really, you know, remarkable. Um, and the previous high that, that shattered the previous high, that was four percentage points higher than when uh, President Obama was on the ballot in 08. Uh, and he um, did extraordinarily well because African-American turnout was through the roof. And so, you know, we saw a really historic turnout and we saw, frankly, a really historic turnout also amongst Republican voters a lot of people who do not usually turn out showed out to vote for Trump. So the question is, who shows up, you know, in this next election? We know it's not going to be 67%, right? Like there's just, that that's just nothing in American history that would indicate that anywhere near that could be possible from a presidential to a Senate. But this is such a unique election and really in, in every possible way. And I really feel um, blessed is really the right word to have a vote, frankly, right. something like this, you know, it, it's, it's, it's just so valuable. And so we've never had an election where this, you, the control of the U S Senate was at stake with two Senate seats. Right. right. Um, this is not an election where people won't notice that it's happening. Like a lot of times people forget that, you know, carpool no, the kids and all the this is not one of those elections right there there are billboards all over atlanta with um john lewis talking about the importance of voting you can't underestimate his importance here there there's a really touching one to me um that has president obama john lewis and dr king on it in african-american neighborhood so you know people are gonna vote um people are gonna vote the, the question is, um, what is what President Trump is doing going to do to the turnout for the Republicans? And no one, there's just no, because politics is ultimately about data, right? And there's just no data to look at 
where you could say that this is an analogous situation, especially, um, with, especially with this guy, right? Especially this yeah. guy, and and he and so the thing that my gut feeling is, having grown up in rural North Carolina, which in Trump country, right, right. is that the um, the voters, a lot of his supporters, are far far less cynical than he is, and that the the politicians are, and that they actually believe what he's saying, and so if you believe that the first vote was rigged and there's no reason to vote anymore, then sadly, you know, you may well not vote again. And, and, you know, it's worth noting the president has also attacked our governor, Lieutenant governor, secretary of state. Those are all Republicans. And so, uh, and and they're all Republicans who are just doing their jobs. We don't know. I mean, it it is, um, it's just, it's fascinating. It's it fasc- seems like more, uh, I mean, this is a statewide election, obviously, but it, it has the spotlight and the fever of a national election at this point. Yes. And, um, and the money, it's going to be a half a billion dollar race. There's going to be half a billion U.S. dollars. Spent yeah. You guys have spent so far, what I read yesterday, you passed the 450 million mark on ads. Alone. Which is, you know, so wildly wildly out of step with anywhere else in the world that is so it's like by magnitudes of like thousands when you compare it to even western democracy so it is crazy but yeah so so this is it feels like a presidential election now. yeah no totally so i want to quickly just dive into the actual candidates really quick i mean everyone's read about them and you know we, we know the basics so we have senator purdue versus ossoff you know, Purdue, we know, wealthy former businessman, one of the richest guys in Congress. Ossoff, 33, documentary filmmaker, has never served in public office. So in your opinion, having been there, lived there, worked there, what do you think are each of their biggest strengths and biggest weaknesses? Well, so, you know, Purdue, um, David Purdue is just, he, he does have a long record in, in business. Right. And, you know, his um, his name just has a lot of resonance in the state of Georgia. His um, cousin is the Secretary of Agriculture under uh, President Trump, and he was our two-term governor. So, you know, people have heard of David Purdue and know him. Um, and so he, he's a strong politician and in a normal time you know, would be an overwhelming favorite, um, but we're not in normal times. Um, and the state is changing. And John Ossoff is a remarkable candidate. Um, he came to national prominence in 2017. He um, was in the first post-Trump election in the country. Um, so President Trump appointed a uh, Republican congressman named Tom Price from the northern Atlanta suburbs to run his health and human services department. And because of that, there was a special election and Ossoff ran for it. And now that was a that was one of those districts that was very affluent northern Atlanta suburb that was always a Republican district. John ran came short, but came real close. And um, and it was one of the maybe the biggest congressional race money wise at, the, at that time. And so he has a lot of name ID and then he helped flip it. And so we have a congressperson now that's a Democrat up there. And, and then he, you know, again, steps up for Senate. He was um, a staffer for, for the, the late Congressman Lewis, got an endorsement from Congressman Lewis. There's no way to overstate the importance of that in Georgia, especially within Georgia Democrats. Right. And then, you know, if any, you know, if anyone really wants to see um, what's going on in that race, there's this amazing interaction between Ossoff and Purdue at this debate in Savannah a few weeks ago that went viral that like Ossoff just destroyed Purdue. And now Purdue is just won't even debate him. Anymore. Wasn't there? Yeah. Didn't Ossoff, sorry. Ossoff, uh, didn't yeah. he show up? Uh, one of the debates and, and Purdue did not. He did. Yeah. Well, you're right. Right. He did literally Purdue has not held a single public meeting in six years of being Senator. Um, And now he won't even debate, you know, it's just the, 
we have we have two of the richest members in the history of Congress running in Georgia. So Purdue is one of the richest members, and Leffler is the richest member of Congress. Her family literally owns the New York Stock Exchange. I was um, going to say, is that due to her husband? Yes, her husband's family. Oh, sorry, her husband's company. She's executive of the New York Stock Exchange's parent company, right? Yes, yes, which is an Atlanta company. And, you know, they've done extraordinarily well for themselves, which you know no one begrudges them for, but. Um, she's never run for office before. She had a very, very contentious election from the far right in the primary, basically a Republican primary, but it was um, that 21-person race in November. And so she barely squeaked through that. And um, as a result, her, um, her negatives are some of the highest you could possibly have. And so sadly, as a result, her campaign has devolved into – um, one long attack on Reverend Warnock, who is the, um, holds the really esteemed position of Reverend of Ebenezer Baptist Church, which is a sacred place in this country, as where um, where Dr. King really led the civil rights movement. You know, it's just ugly to see that, right? right. The, the New York Stock Exchange owners are spending tens of millions of dollars to tarnish the reputation of the pastor of, of Ebenezer Baptist Church. It's just a sad state of affairs. But, well, um, I mean, she's been accused of attacking the black church, correct? She has. I mean, some of the, you know, the these political ads are, are nasty. And, um, you know, they've taken a lot of things. Really, in politics, you have to make a calculation of, at some point, you're so unpopular, the only way you can win is to destroy your opponent. Yeah. And um, I think that's clearly what's happened there. Yeah. She didn't go to kindergarten and learn the basics, right? Right. No, she did not. Another kind of basic question um, about just, just numbers. How will these races determine control of the Senate? And And second question, second part of that is, it seems like if Democrats win, and correct me if I'm wrong, it's a, they'll get 50-50 tie in the Senate. And then I think you mentioned before, Harris will be the tie-breaking vote. Yes. Is that right? That is absolutely right. And All right. So, so what's really important about that is if we win both races, then Chuck Schumer is the Senate majority leader, not Mitch McConnell. And the, and, and, and the chair of, you know, Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren become chairs of committees, right? Right. Um, so, so it's there's no way to overstate how important that is. Well, that um, seems like that's the biggest stake of it all. Right? That absolutely is the biggest stake of it just, all. Just having Mr. McConnell sit down. Mr. McConnell not being the Senate Majority Leader would undoubtedly give uh, President-elect Biden uh, uh, and his administration an opportunity to do all the, you know, if you care about climate change. Well, if it seems you, like if he's not the majority leader, the federal government can function again. No. Well, you know, I, I, I'll say this. <laughs> to, I'll say to, be, this. to be exaggerational here. No, I'll say this. I think I think regardless of what happens, hopefully, you know, we'll have more function with Trump gone, right? right? Because let, let's not let's not sugarcoat what's going on with Trump, right? Like, I mean, he is. Luckily, our foundations of democracy are standing up and pushing back. But he really is trying to do everything he can to, 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 to you know, orchestrate a coup, right? Mitch McConnell is not in that camp, right? Like, should he have done more to push back? Yes. But, but he's not Trump. And so let's not be hyperbolic either. Um, I, I would say that would much more of uh, President-elect Biden's um, – agenda get through it with, you know, Ossoff and Warnock there and a Senate majority leader, Schumer, undoubtedly. I mean, the amount of things that we could do that are so neat, that just the relief we could get to working people alone, you know, just would be unquestionably important. That being said, even if McConnell is the majority leader, hopefully we're moving towards a better place um, anyway. The agenda setting that happens by the leaders and the committee chairs, for instance, just imagine what sort of investigations or hearings Bernie Sanders would have versus Lindsey Graham. And, and, and frankly, that's what Republicans are pointing to in Georgia. They're saying, look, they already have the House. 
Biden, they can't admit Biden won, but they're saying, you know, yeah, they're Kabuki theater or whatever they're doing on that. But essentially it's like, this is your last check on power. And frankly, that's a pretty good argument for them to be making. And then on the flip side, we're saying that everything that you want Biden to be able to do is, is really going to be much more likely if you have 50 votes in the Senate, which so is a little smoother, I would assume. Well, just much more likely to like right. some, just, just some things would just never happen um, without having a majority leadership. Right. right. Ma- many important things that all progressives care about. So again, Georgia voters or residents vote. Okay. So we all know Georgia's a Republican leading state. But for the first time since 92, uh, you guys voted for a Democrat for president. Who are you guys saying for both races is favored to win over there? Well, you know, so you got to remember how important demographics are for all of this. Um, and so Georgia is going to be a majority minority state by 2026. Right. And so you, you mix in the, you know, large uh, college educated, doctoral educated, liberal white population of Atlanta, and you put it in a majority minority state, and all of a sudden Georgia starts to look a lot like a place like Virginia, right? That remember Virginia used to be a Republican state for a long time, and now like it's and and Atlanta really has some of those same demographic trends, and there's also these huge numbers of um, Asians and Hispanics, Latinos moving into the state. So the the pre lean before that was Republican is just it's just sort of changing, and it was only a matter of time just because of of demographics. Um, and so if you look at these elections and you look at kind of what's happened in the past in runoffs, um, the conventional wisdom probably is the Republicans have the upper hand. Part of that is that it's really difficult for a lot of Democratic voters to go vote a second time. Like, you know, let's let's just, again, take a step back and think about, you know, whatever inconvenience you or I may have voting. It's not because we don't have our own cars to drive to the poll, right? nor is it because we have to clock out of a job, nor is it because, you know, there's no one to watch our kids or, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's just harder for our, our folks to get out. And so, so there's that. Um, Which is why these elections should be national, like holidays. By the they way, should, they yeah. should, they should. But, well, the, the sad part is, and this is one of the many things that's going to have to change over time, is that it can't be that one party benefits from more people voting and the other one benefits from less. That's not a, a structure for a healthy democracy. And so hopefully over time that will work itself out. I feel very optimistic that we have a really good chance, uh, but I'm just an optimistic person. In general, but I'll Wait, tell what you, happened to you, dude? Are you optimistic now? Uh, well, I'm optimistic when it comes to democratic politics. When it comes okay. to, <laughs> lots we need of, we need you, Amal. Let's go. Man, I'll tell I, I I do. I think we got. I think we got a good shot. But honestly, it's no one knows because you just don't know who's going to show up. Right. Like we just it's don't. About, know. It's all about who's showing up right now. All about who's going to show up. That's it. That's all. So really quick, I want to talk about that. It's one of my questions, the demographic change happening in Georgia. What can you tell me about the diversity there, the urbanization there that's happened? I know, you know, Clinton won Georgia 28 years ago. Um, So by contrast now, how does it look there? So the way Clinton won Georgia, you know, 1992 and the way Biden won this year just couldn't be more different. Okay. And so, and it really has everything to do with demographics. Right. So the, um, the, in 2006, for instance, with that, with that electorate, Trump would have won Georgia easily because the electorate is just getting a lot less white every year. The uh, conventional wisdom in, um, recent years has been if you can get 30% of the overall electorate to be African-American because African-Americans overwhelmingly vote democratic. And if you can get 30% of the white people who vote to vote for Democrats, 
then then Democrats should be able to win. That's the goal. What has changed, neither one of those things actually happened and Biden still won. The reason why is because there's so many Asians and Hispanics now that the formula has completely changed. This is all to say that this is just all about demographics, right? The reason Georgia is trending in this way when a place like Arkansas or Missouri is going in the complete opposite direction is that, you know, Georgia is a net recipient of people moving here. It's a head of a lot of uh, Fortune 500s are based here. It's a lot of universities, a lot of those jobs. And so Georgia is really an example of economic opportunity shifting the electorate dramatically. And so in the long run, we really do have the demographics, unless something changes dramatically in politics, we do have the demographics that would indicate, you know, blue leaning um, state long yeah. run. Are you guys considered purple now, right now? I think we have to be considered purple now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, the, the thing is, is there's no, there's no official designator yeah. of that. Yeah. There's, there's been, you know, listen, I've been hyping Georgia as a place where Democrats should be trying to win for a long time. Yeah. And people have, you know, been right that I was like too optimistic. And then we finally broke through. And I, I just think it's just the, just the start of it because demographics to some extent are destiny. But the other part of it is, um, is that there's just a lot of people on the ground working. Yeah. Yeah. And, and we Good have this, people, yeah. Yeah. And we have this really strong civil rights history here, right? Yeah. Like the people that you read about, like um, Ambassador Andrew Young, John Lewis, you know, before he sadly passed, like yeah. someone like me actually knew John Lewis, right? Like, like, you know, how would the, how the hell is that possible? Right. And so, and he, and he knew me to, and, and, and like, and he knew everybody. Right. Amazing. And it is, it is amazing. And you can't underestimate how important that is too. No, not at all. So the other question I had, I was thinking about, do you think there, there's going to be voters out there that will vote for both a Democrat and a Republican in this runoff? Will it be, will there be any split ticket issues? So that is to me, that is like the most fascinating if you're like really getting into outcomes and you don't have like a partisan lean on this, right? Because remember, a split ticket would be great in a lot of ways for the Republicans because right. that means the Senate Majority Leader McConnell. Right. That that one thing really makes a big difference. So the conventional wisdom would be like, of course not. Like who who in the world is going to be split on this stuff? The thing is, though, is is there are folks that, that are split on it. And well, so, it felt like it feels like. Sorry for interrupting, but it feels like it was kind of. I mean, people probably did split during the national elections because it was based on Trumpism, right? So it was Biden, but then Republican, everything else, correct? So Purdue got more votes than Biden, right? So that that's an important. That's an important. There, there were a lot of people in Georgia that voted for Biden and Purdue. Um, so the question is, what are those people going to do now? Cause they had, they were just tired. Of, and you know what? These, these are like the Mitt Romney Republicans, right? Right. right. Like, like totally. they're, they're like Republicans, but they believe in the rule of law and are not anti-immigrant. Little you chill, know? little chill. Yeah. yeah. Right, right, right. 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 They believe in globalization. Right. And, and um, so what, the, I don't know what those folks are going to do. Um, so there, there is a possibility that if, if it was, so there's no way that Ossoff and Leffler will win, right? Like that combination is like a 0% chance. Ossoff and Leffler. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because remember Purdue has, Purdue does have a resonance and remember Leffler was, has never been elected to anything. Either. Anything. Yeah. Out of, out of those three people, uh, four people, the only person that's been elected to an office is Purdue. Purdue. And so, so yeah, maybe, maybe Purdue and Warnock win. That's, that could happen. I don't think it's likely. Um, I actually, first of all, I think Ossoff is really, really shown himself to be a great candidate. Secondly, there is a unfortunate and sad history in Georgia of African-American candidates not performing as well as the polling might indicate on statewide races from, from time to time. So, so 
who knows there. But I would say, you know, this is, uh, you know, going back to your Texas roots, this is like you're not a Longhorn and an Aggie. No. Like you just pick one of them. Yeah. And that's what this, that's, that's what this but it is. is. Okay. Yeah. And then I mean, we're both obviously brown people. So what is, so this election obviously has mobilized democratic South Asian voters like never before. What is the South Asian angle on this election for Georgia? Well, that's the part that has for me been so um, heartwarming, right? So before, like, you know, when I was back in those, um, you know, the, the state Senate job and all that, there was some interest in Indian Americans because there was like this perception that we could raise some money. Right. Like, you know, I think that the people like the doctors and hotel owners, maybe you could raise us some money. And that's why we care about Indians. And, you know, that to a large extent remains true. And, and frankly, um, that fundraising heft is extremely useful to the South Asian community. But now we're at a point where like we can actually swing votes like we got to remember Biden won Georgia by 12,000 votes right so in that sort of and and you gotta like also remember what's going on here and I'm sure you've seen this in Texas my cousin who unlike us was not born in the United States or raised here he was educated there and then you know came to America kind of computer scientist all the rest of it finds his way down to Atlanta gets a great job with Citibank he's services Home Depot, which is a Georgia corporation. And so I see these parts of Georgia that I have just never seen before, before he gets here. And so when he first gets here, he has moved into an apartment complex in the best school district, not surprisingly, in the entire state, right? And there's so many Indian people in this one little apartment complex that they have literally converted the tennis courts into a cricket field. Older men are like walking around after dinner, holding hands. Like it's like, it's like a place in Mumbai. Right. And then, so then, then he lived there while his house was being built. And then he moves to a place. And again, within the best school district in the state, heavily Indian, all the rest of it. 75% of his neighborhood is Indian. Like we went there for Diwali the other day, you know, Diwali decorations, 75% of the neighborhood. Nice. Right. And, you know, and then just extract that for Filipino Americans, right? Japanese Americans, what you name it, Korean, huge Korean American population. And so Georgia has now just become an extremely diverse place where our votes actually matter. I, I'll tell you, there are prominent people involved on both sides. There are prominent Indian American Republicans in right. Georgia, you know, right. very much so just like around the country, you know, I think we're, we're not going away. It's not like when we we're growing up and, you know, I think a lot of times our parents are just happy getting a picture with a politician or whatever. That's over now. Yeah. yeah you know, it's over now. Um, now if, if we're not the ones running, then we certainly want to seat at the table. It is thanks to our parents, by the way, of course. Oh my God. I mean, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, of right. course. Do you know, uh, do you happen to know offhand what, what is the South Asian population in Georgia? I don't know the number off the top of my head, but right. do, it was something, it was something like 1% of the voting population, Okay. Um, that was persuaded. I, I don't know. I'm sure we could find those, sure. but it, but it was enough where I'll tell you this: the, the conversation I had with the South Asians for Biden group in Georgia this year was very different than it's ever been in years past. Right? Because in years past, those groups sometimes were like Indian groups tend to be where everyone's trying to be president. <laughs> and this year, it's much more of a situation where no one cares about that, and we yeah. know. And we know that the that, that like our votes could matter. Yeah. And, get, and, and you know, again, Biden won by twelve thousand votes. There are these. There are like these folks that have never been involved in politics before. I can guarantee you, South Asians in Georgia got more than twelve thousand votes through their political activism, and thus won a state yeah. for Joe Biden. Yeah. I mean, so that's the difference. That's yeah. I mean, there is a history of us kind of being apathetic towards it, right? Towards voting in general. Um, and that's definitely changed. Well, I'll tell you the amount of 
activism from other states into Georgia is staggering. All is it? Okay. Like we can, you, can you name some organizations that have you worked with anyone? Yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Well, so uh, well, I'll t- so I would say that at this juncture in the game, if you really want to make an impact, giving to one of the two Senate candidates is the way to really contribute. Right. Or working with any number of Georgia groups, but really, you know, we're, we're really late in the game at this point. So if you could yeah. give some resources, that would be wonderful. But the, the, Amount, but there's other opportunities. Um, there's you know local South Asian groups, for instance. Um, there have been people in you know I've received calls from uh, South Asian people in like New Jersey and Texas. Wait, wait, there's Indian people in New Jersey, right? Right. Really? But I'll tell you what what's great, and this is another part of the sophistication is bef- even before Georgia. Like, remember, Georgia wasn't really supposed to be where it's at now, right? right? And so I was on these calls with these national groups talking about Georgia, and people were sort of, you know, it'd be like talking about Texas. Like, that's great. That's great. One day, maybe Texas will be blue. Right. But, like, you know, okay, let's let's see what happens, right? right? And we finally got there. And even in that circumstance, people in New Jersey, and these are like people, our parents, you know, generation, very much realized there's no reason to call neighbors in New Jersey because New Jersey was going blue. So they were actually calling down here already. Right. And so that's really intensified. Um, And so I would say that the best way is, you know, if you can make a financial contribution or lob in some calls or whatever, we'd always very much appreciate it. But really it's about after January 6th uh, to, um, and just getting involved with the process. Like there's a lot of this, like you can't, we don't have the luxury to just get a good job and make a lot of money and live in your wealthy enclave and just, you know, assume that someone else is going to figure this out. No, like, we're, we're, not, we're, we're having kids. We got to do some more shit. Get, get in the game. Yeah. Right? And, and like, I think for our parents, that made sense. They came here and they were surviving and, and we could not expect any more from them. But our kids should expect more from us Amen. In, ter- in terms of getting involved. This is our country. Yes, we're Indian. Yes, I get it. But this is our country. We have to shape this. And, and so, we are and we have and we yes. will. And, and yeah. look at, I mean, look at your Facebook feed. Like I, I guarantee you, just like, like me, the amount of like people in healthcare getting their vaccinations, including my own father today, you know, because they're on the front lines, like Indians have been in public service ever since we got here. Right. Right. Like, and you know, it's not like, so my dad was the only pulmonary physician in the poorest County in North Carolina for over three decades. That's amazing. Like, so if that's not public service, you know, I don't know what is. That's right. And so, so yeah, I mean, you know, he has Indian, Indian, he has an accent. He didn't go to law school here. Like he would never like the stuff that I say publicly to inflame Republicans or whatever drives him crazy. Like he would never do any of those things. But the only reason I would dare to have the the ability to do any of that is because He he gave it to you. He gave it to me. He, he gave, they gave it to all of us. He right? gave, and he gave it to you and your parents did the same thing for you. Yeah, and, yeah. They gave they then, give us platforms. They gave us, I mean, pretty much, yeah. You name it, right? You name it. We're, we just couldn't be luckier. And, and, and listen, the thing, this is the last thing I'll say about it. It's just sitting back and just assuming that you can just go with whatever, like, like results in you paying less taxes. It's such a short-sighted way to go about like you know what i'm saying and, it is and, and, it completely is and i'll tell you that the thing that was most disappointing to me in this past like you know I, I have a lot of friends that are republicans and there's a lot of great republican people but but the the indian american community the aspects that latched on to the anti-muslim rhetoric of the trump administration is oh shameful. my God. Oh it's my shameful. God. I'm it's shameful. It's it shameful. is. It is. Shameful. That, that is a whole podcast, my friend. It's a whole podcast, but it's shameful. It, it is shameful. Is. No, I'm saying like it is. Sh- it, that's how shameful it is. It's, yes. it's insane. Yeah. And yes. when you do run for president of the United States and win, <laughs> will I be invited to the Diwali party? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, I, 
it's it is one of those deals where like you know should you run for office or not i don't think i want to run for anything but i do clearly love politics so my goal would be to help someone become president of the United States that I'm close enough to where you're absolutely at that Diwali party. All right. That's, so, I mean, I don't, I don't really care about you. It's more right. No, you said, will you get an invite? Yes. Right. All right. So, done. Um, and then I do really feel strongly about having a reunion because I feel like childhood bonds are irreplaceable. Uh, when we have that, are you ready for a dance off? Well, see, the thing is, is I was never as cool as you growing up, right? Like, no, I wasn't either. You were cool, like I you were. Cool. Yeah, you were cool. You were, in know. fact, I remember, I remember thinking I needed to step up my game to be like, you know, these 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 kids from Texas are like kind of cool. No, I, no, I will not have a dance off with you because okay. I'll lose. You know what? I will tap in your wife then. How about that? She, well, she's a great dancer. All right, 2021, let's start this year off right. Georgia, we're counting on you. No pressure, no big deal. To everyone else, please follow me at Ami Tuckered Out. I have so many fantastic interviews coming up, uh, lots of changes as well, exciting, fun changes, and I can't wait to spend the year with you guys. Thanks for listening. This is Ami Tuckered Out.